Welcome to our first aficionados lecture for the 2006-2007 year. And these lunches are planned and supported by the Holbert Center for Southwest Studies. And this is part of our outreach program to share our interests in the Southwest with the larger Colorado Springs community. And I just really quickly, as a way to start, I wanted to introduce you to our staff. My name's Ann Hyde, and I'm director of the Holbert Center, temporary on, temporarily on loan from the History Department. And back in the corner over there is our staff. And first we have Susie Nishida, who is the planner extraordinaire. And we have Kathy Kalin, who is our staff assistant. And we also have Casey McGee, who's our new publications and field trip expert. And this year we have a full staff of student workers, including Jeremy Denley, Alex Hesbrook, and Brendan Montoya. Our next aficionados luncheon is on Wednesday, October 11th. And this will be a talk by Matt Mayberry, who's director of the Colorado Springs Pioneers Museum. And the title of his talk is, I once was lost, but now am found, the impact of the Pike Bicentennial. So I'm looking forward to that one, too. Today's talk is by Colorado College's distinguished lecturer and legal scholar in residence, Phil Cannon. And Phil received a Bachelor of Science and Master of Arts in Mathematics from the University of North Carolina, Chapel Hill. And with that scientific background, he went on to law school. And my dad, who was a retired law professor, always said his best law students were math majors because he said they understood logic. So I guess that means that lawyers need logic. Um, but in any case, Phil is clearly well qualified by that definition. He's been teaching at Colorado College in Environmental Science and Southwest Studies for several years. He teaches courses like Native Americans under federal law, environmental law of the Southwest, environmental policy, and he introduces our students to the joys of reading legal cases. So if you see students buried under the weight of huge case books, they're in Phil's class, which is good for them. He's also taught a course about legal issues in the Southwest for our Master of Arts in Teaching program. And he has a private law practice and is, is, works as a consultant on environmental issues. He's published a lot of articles in law reviews and journals, generally on the subjects of administrative law, environmental law, and government contracts. And several of his articles have been cited in court opinions and have been presented as a part of legal cases. And as part of his work in the Holbert Center for Southwest Studies, he's been working on putting together um, case studies on the issue of Hispanics and access to education in the Southwest. And that is the title of his talk today, The Struggle for Equal Education by Hispanics in the Southwest. So help me welcome Phil Cannon. Welcome to um, what I hope will be um, a swift but understandable journey through some important legal decisions that are critical in trying to understand um, the situation of Hispanics as they struggle for adequate and perhaps superlative educations in, in the country, especially in the Southwest. And I do want to say that although I will start um, long, long ago, looking at cases that are um, fairly old and then some fairly recent ones, the struggle's not over. And I'll give you some data at the very end to emphasize where we are at this moment. But let me start with some context. In um, 1896, there's a famous Supreme Court case that was decided about racial segregation. It's a case I'm sure you know. It's called Plessy versus Ferguson. And it involved segregated railroad cars. This case made it to the Supreme Court, and the issue was whether or not the state of Louisiana could require segregated railroad cars. And the Supreme Court segregated by race. And the Supreme Court said, yes, 
that was permissible. As long as the facilities provided to the minority race, in this case African Americans, as long as those were, quote, equal. This gave rise to a doctrine called the separate but equal doctrine, which dominated race relations for decades, starting in 1896. That's the context in which the Hispanic struggle for equal education opportunities had to be planted and grow. This concept that equal facilities, meaning buildings or train cars, passenger train cars, or law schools or public schools, could be segregated by race, provided they were equal. And I want to read you the justification that the Supreme Court gave in its analysis that upheld the segregation of railroad cars. Justice Brown, speaking for the Supreme Court, said, it is solely, no, it says, if the enforced separation of the two races stamps the colored race with a badge of inferiority, it is solely because the colored race chooses to put that construction upon it. In other words, it's not an objective harm, it's the harm that they read into it. And if they choose to do that, don't expect the court system to protect against that. That's the context in which the Hispanic community found itself when it began this assault on segregation. So that's 1896. Now, move with me, if you would, please, to 1946. And instead of a railroad car in Louisiana, let's go to Orange County, California. Orange County, California, had a segregated school system in which Hispanic, and at that time, primarily that referred to people of Mexican ancestry. Those students were segregated at least from grades one through six, and almost always it was from grades one through eight. After grade eight, Orange County allowed those students who were still in the system to go to the other school. The Mendez family living in Orange County, they were unsatisfied, dissatisfied with this segregation. They understood the consequences of segregation a lot clearer than Justice Brown and the Supreme Court. They knew that the harm was not just subjective, although, of course, that's enough. The family decided to challenge the segregation, the isolation of Mexican ancestry children, and filed a lawsuit in federal court challenging it, even in the face of what you have to consider long odds, if you understand what the Supreme Court said in Plessy v. Ferguson. The school board got copies, were served with papers in the lawsuit, and all of a sudden decided that, you know, maybe we should let these kids, these particular kids, the Mendez kids, go to the other school. So they contacted the parents. This is a strategy in which you co-opt your opposition and offer them the opportunity, and only them, the rest of the 5,000 students in the county, would still be segregated. The Mendez family said, thanks, but we are challenging the system. So they pressed forward with their lawsuit. They claimed that the segregation of students with Mexican ancestry violated California's education laws and violated the Equal Protection Clause in the United States Constitution, the 14th Amendment of the United States Constitution. 
They were faced with an uphill struggle because legal precedent was surely against them. In this situation in Orange County, there is no doubt that the school buildings were equal, that the books were equal, that the qualifications of the teachers were equal. The schools were budgeted and treated and managed the same. If the doctrine of Plessy versus Ferguson controlled, these students had no chance at all of winning because they had separate but equal facilities. You understand that they were fighting an uphill battle, but they pressed their case, and a courageous district judge named McCormick, who has uh, slipped into the mysteries, into the memories of history, ruled in their favor. Um, that uh, opinion by that judge is quite remarkable. It's courageous, it's innovative, and it's almost lost. It's not a case that's, that's widely studied by lawyers. It's not a case that's widely studied by civil rights activists. It's an amazing case. Um, and it has some interesting footnotes. The governor of California at this time, when this case was uh, litigated, was Earl Warren. And you know Earl Warren because he later became the chief justice of the Supreme Court, United States Supreme Court, and he, in fact, um, is the justice who wrote the famous Brown versus Board of Education case in 1954, outlawing finding unconstitutional racial segregation. It's hard to say, how hard to measure how much his thinking was influenced by this case. But when I read you some of the material and quote some of the material from the Brown case, it's striking. The argument that the students made in this case, or their lawyer for them, was that California law prohibited this kind of segregation. California law required education of students between the age of, I think, 6 and 20-something. And California law provided for educating handicapped students, and that law made no distinction about race. Moreover, California had a law, a statute, that permitted, allowed school districts to um, take students of Mexican ancestry into a regular classroom. Obviously, they offered the Mendez kids this option. So there was a, a law that permitted schools to admit students of Mexican um, origin, ancestry, and there was a law about special education that made no distinction at all. That was it. You'll see in a moment when we look at the Court of Appeals case that there were two other important laws, but this judge didn't pay any attention to them. This judge concluded that from the implication from the existence of those two laws that don't differentiate to the disadvantage of Mexican-Americans was the implication was that California never intended for a county school board to segregate students of Mexican heritage and struck down the policy that was uniform throughout Orange County, in fact, throughout California, but this was only the Orange County piece, struck them down. And I want to read you some language from that opinion. Um, before I read you this language, I'm going to add one comment. So the, the judge said, segregating Mexican uh, students of Mexican heritage from other students violated California law, and the violation of California law was enough to be a denial of equal protection under the federal law. So it became a federal violation as well as a state violation. And I want to read you this um, the equal protection of the law pertaining to public school to the public school system in California is not provide, provided by furnishing in separate schools the same technical facilities, textbooks, and course instruction to children of Mexican ancestry 
that are available to other public school children, regardless of their ancestry. A paramount requisite in the American system of public education is social equality. It must be open to all children by a unified school association, regardless of lineage. The concept of social equality was revolutionary. It it was clearly contrary to the Supreme Court's analysis in Plessy versus Ferguson that all that's required is equal facilities. Beyond that, it's up to the races to sort out their relationship. This judge said no. Social equality is what the Equal Protection Clause requires, and this is not social equality. And then I want to read you one more. And, and it said, this judge said, there must be a unified school system, unified school system. You'll see that word picked up again in Brown versus Board of Education. It is also, this is another quote from the judge. It is also established by the record that the method of segregation prevalent in the defendant's school districts fostered antagonism in the children and suggested inferiority among them where none existed. Now, that was courageous for this judge to, he's not a professional psychoanalyst, but he's a level-headed, rational person who understood the consequences of segregation where none existed. That was a powerful statement. The um, judge ruled in favor of the students. The school district appealed. The Court of Appeals heard the case, and they upheld the decision. But their logic was different. This case received a little bit of press coverage, not notoriety, but a little bit of press coverage, and it was picked up by Thurgood Marshall, who became, um, of course, the who was a champion of racial um, integration, who ultimately argued in the Supreme Court the case of Brown versus Board of Education. So now we have Thurgood Marshall representing the National Association for the Advancement of Colored People, who filed a friend of the court brief urging the Court of Appeals to uphold this decision. We have um, Thurgood Marshall and Earl Warren playing background roles. They aren't on the front line, either of them, in this case, but they will be on the front line later. They're both influenced by this case. The Court of Appeals analyzed the case differently from the, from the trial court. The Court of Appeals said, in the law, Notice, uh, to, to talk about just one second more, the district, the trial court. The trial court did not mention Plessy versus Ferguson. It implicitly mentioned it when it said that quote I gave you about equal facilities, equal textbooks. He's getting at it, but he doesn't face up to it. He doesn't come to grips with it. The Court of Appeals couldn't do that. They had to come to grips with it. They're an appellate court. They knew that the Supreme Court precedent could um, control, so they had to come to grips with it. The Court of Appeals said... In California, there are two laws. One law requires the segregation of Native Americans in in education. The second law um, requires the segregation of um, Asian Americans, if you like, people of Asian ancestry. Those laws require segregation. Not one word is said about requiring segregation of people of Mexican um, ancestry. The court leaped to the conclusion that the absence of a law requiring that kind of segregation meant that the California legislature had outlawed it implicitly, and therefore segregating was segregating Mexican ancestry children was a violation of California law. And like the trial court said, the court said that violation constitutes also a failure to provide equal protection of the law under the federal constitution. So he struck it down. The court then, in that process, grappled with Plessy versus Ferguson. What about these were equal facilities? What about Plessy versus Ferguson? And the court um, was so creative and said this, that equal 
separate but equal, only applies to, quote, the great races. It does not apply to discrimination within a particular race so that equal facilities for blacks and whites, constitutional. Equal facilities for people in the category of white, not constitutional. And Mexican ancestry people he put in the category of white. I want to read you a couple of statements out of that. But this Court of Appeals did not take the bold step of saying that social equality is what's required. It may be appropriate, no, it may appropriately be noted, this is a quote now from the Court of Appeals, it may appropriately be noted that the segregation so provided for, that means the, the ones I told you were provided for by statute, uh, Native American segregation and segregation of people of uh, Asian ancestry. And the segregation referred to in the cases cited, including Plessy versus Ferguson, um, belong to, I'm sorry, uh, includes only children of parents belonging to one or another of the great races of mankind. It is interesting to note at this juncture of the cases that the parties have stipulated. No, that's good enough. So the, the court's saying that those cases, especially Plessy versus Ferguson, only applies when the segregation is between what are called great races. And I have no idea what that means, and I don't think this court had any idea of what it meant. And it didn't care. All it wanted to do was justice. And um, if it could get around requiring or upholding segregation by saying that there are races and, and there are great races, and you can segregate great races, but you can't segregate within a great race, it would do it. It got the right conclusion using quite fuzzy logic. Here's the last quote from this case, because it tells you their attitude. It shows you their attitude. Therefore, conceding for the argument that California could legally enact a law authorizing the segregation um, as practiced, uh, the fact stands out unchallenged that California has not done so. There's no California law requiring Mexican um, ancestry children to be segregated. Has not done so, but to the contrary, has enacted laws wholly inconsistent with that practice. By enforcing the segregation of school children of Mexican descent against their will and contrary to the laws of California, the school districts have violated the federal law as prescribed, as provided in the 14th Amendment to the Constitution, and they have denied them the equal protection of the law. This case meant that in the Ninth Circuit, which consists of California, Arizona, Washington, Oregon, Hawaii, um, Alaska, maybe another state in there, segregation against people of, of Mexican ancestry is unconstitutional. And then the court did something that no court is ever supposed to do, no federal court is ever supposed to do. The court went on to gratuitously protect all, quote, Latin people. The court said if the school boards segregate any Latin people, they will be violating equal protection of the law, not just Mexican ancestry people. A remarkable decision when it was made. The next case I want to talk about, the name of that case is Westminster School District of Orange County versus Mendez. Amazing case. Started in 1946. The Court of Appeals is ultimately two years later. Long before Brown versus Board of Education, which is 1954. But the characters make, the, the characters that were involved tangentially make this an, a, a, an interesting and important case. You have Earl Warren, the governor, Overseeing, but not a party to this lawsuit. And you have Thurgood Marshall, the civil rights advocate, who will ultimately lead the uh, case in Brown versus Board of Education, filing an amicus brief, a, feel, a friend of the court brief, arguing that the district court uh, opinion is correct and should be upheld. You will see them again, of course, in Brown versus Board of Education. The next case 
is a case that comes from Texas. It's San Antonio Independent School District versus Rodriguez. Here you have a family that lived in San Antonio, lived in a poor neighborhood, and Texas financed their school the way most schools are financed in this nation through local property tax. What happens if you live in a poor district? That means that the property values are low, and that means the amount of money that goes to the school is low, and that means that your kids are not going to get a good education. The Rodriguez family um, didn't like that. They wanted their kids to have a chance in life, and that meant have a good education. So they filed a lawsuit, not as a racial lawsuit or not as a national origin lawsuit, but as a lawsuit representing poor people because there are plenty of poor white people that suffer from this. This is a case challenging... It's a case challenging a law based on socioeconomic conditions, but it's led by a Hispanic team because they feel the brunt of this uh, discrimination. And this case went to the United States Supreme Court. It was decided in 1972. And it's an amazing case, but it's a sad case. It's an unfortunate case. The Supreme Court was faced with the question of whether or not having schools financed by property tax, which resulted in disparate amounts of money per student, whether or not that violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment. And they ultimately ruled the answer was no, it does not violate the Equal Protection Clause. And that's bad enough. But the worst part of this case is the logic that the court used. It's very troubling, and in my judgment, it's wrong. The court said that education is not a fundamental right in the United States. And because it's not a fundamental right, the state has flexibility in how it uh, designs its program. The state does not have to meet a high standard under the law for it to be constitutional, a low standard applied. And as long as the rule, the law, is, quote, rational, that's good enough. Had the Supreme Court said education is a fundamental right, then they would have demanded more of Texas and would have struck this law down, in my judgment. But they didn't. Still today, the rule, the principle of law is education is not a fundamental right in the United States. Now, I think that's completely wrong. Society in 1972, when this case was decided, was already complicated enough. The thought of a person being able to live a fruitful life without an education in 1972 is unrealistic. It is certainly more unrealistic today with the dramatic levels of uh, complexity that we have in everything from communications to transportation to trade to commerce to you name it. The concept that education is not a fundamental right, in my judgment, is simply wrong today. It was wrong then. It's even wronger now. This question needs to be revisited. Um, so there's the bad news. That's still the law. The, the, the Hispanic community did not give up after they lost this lawsuit. They filed another lawsuit, this time in the Texas court system, not the federal court system, and they claimed a violation of the Texas Constitution, not the American Constitution, and they won. Um, they won because the Texas Constitution, like so many state constitutions, mentions education. The Texas Constitution says the following. Um, a general diffusion of knowledge being essential to the preservation of the liberties and rights of the people, it shall be the duty of the legislature of the state to establish and make suitable provisions for the support and maintenance of an efficient system of public schools, period. The argument that the uh, family made, the Hispanic families made in this case was having a school system in which the valuations varied by a factor of 700. The richest schools had property tax, uh, a base, the property that tax would be based on 700 times the property value of the poorest school district. The Supreme Court of Texas, quite remarkably, not known as a liberal court, not known as a court that protects individual rights, certainly not in 1970s, the Texas Supreme Court said, 
Wait a second. The Constitution says the education is supposed to be generally diffused and it's supposed to be efficient. This is not, the system that's in place now is not generally diffused and it's not efficient. So it was not a complicated uh, uh, constitutional case in equal protection or individual rights. It's the nuts and bolts of how to run a school system. And the court, Texas court struck it down. Since that case, there have been approximately 25 other cases brought in state courts around this nation. Roughly half of them have, half of them have succeeded and half have lost. In our state of Colorado, a case was brought in 1982. It was decided by the Colorado Supreme Court in 1982. And the name of that case is Lujan versus Colorado State Board of Education. And the Supreme Court of Colorado ruled against, against, uh, the students. And let me read you the quote from the Colorado State Constitution, which to me sounds stronger than the Texas Constitution. Here's what it says. Establishment and maintenance of public schools. The General Assembly shall, as soon as practicable, provide for the establishment and maintenance of a thorough and uniform system of free public schools, blah, blah, blah. Man, that sounds like a winner to me. But they lost it. Colorado uh, can still maintain education based on property tax and property tax valuation. Um, the next case I want to talk about is an early 80s case, and it's Castaneda versus Pickard. It's a Texas case. It has two issues in it, two questions, both of which are relevant today. In fact, maybe more relevant today than they were then. The two questions in this case were, first of all, what about bilingual education? Is bilingual education required under the federal constitution, under federal law? and under some law, a new law that Congress had just passed. And secondly, what about uh, tracking or, or what's it, ability grouping, ability um, grouping? Can cities, uh, can public schools have tracking? Can they have ability grouping? Both of those cases were before the court. Um, this is a court of appeals case, not a Supreme Court case, a court of appeals. It's the Fifth Circuit, which means it controls, at that time it controlled Texas and Florida. Now it, Florida is in the Eleventh Circuit now, but this is an important case. And the fact that it's a, a district, uh, that a court of appeals case um, isn't terribly important now because it has been, it's so around, it's been around so long, it has become almost like a Supreme Court case. It has been followed and followed and followed in district, in circuit after circuit after circuit. It's a very important case. Okay. Looking at bilingual education. Um, Texas did not provide bilingual education beyond the third grade. Grades one through one second, first, second, and third had bilingual education. After that, no. They had a little tiny transition. In the fourth grade, they would try to have a teacher's aide who spoke Spanish. After that, no bilingual education. Um, Congress had passed a law called the Equal Education Opportunity Act that said that made it unlawful for an, um, an educational agency, meaning a school district, to fail to take appropriate appropriate action to overcome language barriers that impede equal participation by its students in instructional programs. That's what Congress passed. It's called the Equal Education Opportunity Act. The Hispanic families argued that this law required bilingual education and that Texas, by only providing bilingual education in the first three grades, was violating this law. And also they were violating civil rights law called Title VI, which requires non-discrimination based on national origin. The, the Court of Appeals rejected both of those arguments. The Court of Appeals said Congress did not mandate bilingual education. They only mandated, quote, an appropriate system to overcome language barriers. And there are other systems besides bilingual education, that can do that. In announcing that conclusion, the court laid out three tests that 
measure appropriateness. The court said the method chosen must have must have been developed by experts. You can't get a bunch of good old boys sitting around the fireplace deciding how to educate people with language barriers. It's got to be done by professionals, and it's got to be supported by qualified expert testimony. That's the first requirement. The second requirement is the school district has to provide sufficient, sufficient funds and support and resources so that the system has a chance of working. You can't starve it to death. You can't create it as a theoretical method and let it die. And the third requirement is after a trial period, it's got to show results. You can't have a system, you say the experts design and they say it's going to work and you give it money and teachers and it produces nothing. That will be struck down. That's not appropriate. That doesn't satisfy Congress's requirement. So the fam Hispanic families and students lost. The next question that case becomes important in the very last case we're going to talk about. It's again about bilingual education. That issue will not go away. The next part of this case had to do with tracking, with ability grouping. The court um, saw the data, and the data showed that in the school, in school district after school district after school district, you would find um, Hispanic children bunched in the not advanced class. I don't know what you call it, but can I call it the not advanced class? And you would find the other students in the advanced class. And that was the basis of the challenge by the Hispanic community, Hispanic students and parents. The Court of Appeals said tracking is not inherently a denial of equal protection. It is not inherently a violation of the Equal Protection Clause. If the school district is a unified school district. That means this. If the school district used to be segregated by race but has now overcome that and is now no longer segregated by race, if it is a unified school district, then tracking is permitted as long as, as, long as the differentiation is based on the content of the subject rather than language. The court said don't group people because they have poor language skills don't put them in the pre-algebra class and call them um, deficient in math. If the true problem is language, then you must call it uh, a language deficiency class, not an algebra deficiency class. Um, and in this case, the data wasn't at enough the court had in front of it to decide it, so it sent it back for further development of the data. We will see again in a moment um, revisit this question of bilingual education. The next case is a Supreme Court case, and it's so important. And it was a beautiful opinion written by one of my um, favorite justices, William Brennan, an amazing, an amazing man. The name of this case is Plyler versus Doe. Doe, I, I'm, I tell you the name because Doe is important. Jane, John Doe, Jane Doe. These uh, students were afraid of retaliation. Um, if they brought this suit in their own name, they lived um, uh, in a county, they lived in a part of Texas, although their district was heavily Hispanic, the surrounding community was not, and certainly the power structure was not. This case involves a Texas law that did two things: one, forbid, forbade, is that the right name? Passed, forbade spending any state money to educate an undocumented student. An illegal alien, an illegal student, um, no state money. And then it went further to say that no school district could admit any undocumented student. That essentially meant that here you have a group of people who are frozen out of education. They are doomed forever to be uneducated. And that was a terrible, terrible mistake. Strategic legal mistake. Um, it offended the Supreme Court. It offended Justice Brennan. Um, and he didn't, he didn't really try to hide it, to tell you the truth. His opinion is stinging and critical. He points out the obvious first. This law is targeted at students. It's not targeted at their parents. It's targeted at students. 
And Justice Brennan observed for the court that these students don't control where they are and what they're doing. They can't control their parents. Their parents control them. And this is a law that says Justice Brennan that publishes children for conduct of their parent. And this is foreign to the American system, to the American sense of judgment, of, of justice. Moreover, this system will create what Justice Brennan called an underclass, a permanent underclass of, of uh, people who are doomed in their opportunities in this nation, an underclass. And he didn't use that word class casually. In another sentence, he calls it a caste of, of students, of people who can't perform and can't compete in the modern society. He could have said a group, but he didn't. He chose his words very carefully. He called them an underclass and a caste, an undercaste. And that's what he meant. I want to read you one quote. Sheer incapability or lax enforcement of the law, barring entry into this country, coupled with the failure to establish an effective bar to the employment of undocumented aliens, has resulted in the creation of a substantial shadow population of illegal immigrants, numbering in the millions within our border. The situation raises the specter of a permanent caste of undocumented resident aliens, encouraged by some to remain as a source of cheap labor, but nevertheless denied the benefits of our society that our society makes available to citizens and lawful residents. The existence of such an underclass presents most difficult problems for a nation that prides itself on adherence to principles of equality under the law. You couldn't say it better than that. This law was struck down, and Texas was directed to allow all students who were residents in the school district to attend the school district. This is a remarkable. This is 1982. Steal the law today. Steal the law today. Okay, let me skip over. Uh, I see I'm running out of time. That's fine. I want to get to the very last case. Very last case. Important case. It comes from California. Valeria versus Davis. California's population passed Proposition 227. Propositions, you know, are voted on directly by the people. They are laws that become law, not by going through the legislature, but they are laws that become law because the people vote on them, plebiscite. The people of California passed a law that said um, bilingual education is ended. No more bilingual education in California schools. None. Um, there were some exceptions if the student could show harm or, or a mental reason or very narrow, tight exceptions. This law um, was very harmful to the Hispanic community. They knew the consequences of having to struggle to learn language and content. They knew it was difficult. But they also knew that the Fifth Circuit, Supreme Court, Fifth Circuit case that I talked about a moment ago, Casanita, was essentially the law of the land. And they knew if they challenged it on equal protection grounds, they would lose. Very low probability of winning. Um, so they chose a different theory. They challenged Proposition 227, which had, which had swept through the state with a slogan that said, students are taught English by being taught in English. Clever little, clever little saying. Students are taught English by being taught in English. That was the replacement for bilingual education. The community filed a lawsuit not claiming equal protection violation. They knew it was a probable loser if they did. They found a new theory. Uh, it's called 
political distribution of authority theory. The Supreme Court ruled, not in a, not in a case like this, but in a different case, different setting, that if a state legislature changed the allocation of power, political power, redistributed political power in such a way that it discriminated against an identifiable disadvantaged group, then that reallocation was illegal. So the Hispanic community said, look at what this Proposition 227 does. It reallocates power. Before 227, the local school boards decided on whether or not to have bilingual education. This takes it away from the local school board and puts it in the hands of the state legislature. That's reallocation of political power. And it disadvantages groups, namely people who are limited English speakers. That was their theory. Their case was decided, not by, again, not by the Supreme Court, but it was decided by the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which sits in San Francisco and includes now California and all those states I named for you, and is usually considered a liberal court of appeals. That court ruled against the Hispanic community because in order to win under their political redistribution theory, the people that are complaining, that are bringing the lawsuit, called the plaintiffs, must prove that the discrimination was intentional, that the discrimination was intentional. Now, how in the world can you prove that the voting population of California intentionally, in passing a proposition, intentionally discriminated against a minority? It's impossible. It's impossible. They lost, but they fought a good fight. Well, let me stop. I want to say the struggle certainly continues, but there has been progress. Every year, the Department of Education publishes what's called a GAP report, G-A-P, GAP report, that tries to measure the difference between educational attainment by Hispanic students in this nation, in this whole country, and non-Hispanic, or can I call them white? I don't know what to call them. We'll call them white people. I don't know. And I want to give you the latest data from the latest study. The data starts in 1975, and the last data is in 2004. And you know what a GAP study looks like, a graph that shows you here are the scores of the white folks, and here are the scores of the Hispanic folks, and the difference is the GAP. Now, theoretically, of course, what do you want to see happening? You want to see the GAP closing. But I'll tell you something else you want to see. You want to see that both of those charts being trending up. You want everybody to make progress. All right? You don't see that. Here's what you see. The white graph is almost flat. Um, in 1975, they, their score was measured as a number, 217. And don't ask me what that is. It's just some normalized score. In 2004, they had only gained to 226, not much of a gain, nine points. The Hispanic scores started out with a gap of 34 points. They went they were at 183. In 2004, they were all the way up to 205. They made marked progress. So they're closing the gap. That's the good news. It's slow. That's the bad news, part of it. The target is not a moving target. That's kind of a bad piece of news. But although it's taking too long, and although it's um, taken too many battles, and although the gap is unacceptable, we can see progress. Thank you. And we do have some time, I hope, for questions. We have a microphone. If you'll just hold on, the microphone will be shuttled over to you. There you go. How does Colorado manage to maintain supported school systems by the property tax after that 
state Supreme Court ruling? The state Supreme Court ruling, the Colorado state Supreme Court ruling, said that Colorado's practice is not unconstitutional. It was consistent with the Constitution. Now, Colorado, like most states, probably supplements their property tax basis. But nevertheless, property tax remains as an important part of education, the financing of education in Colorado. If there are two battles that are worth refighting, here's the most important one. The battle of trying to revisit whether or not education is a fundamental right. I think times have so changed, the complexity of this world, this country is so much greater, that a strong argument can be formed that it is a fundamental right. And secondly, I think that this question, Dick, of continuing to use a method to finance schools that is so disparate makes so little sense that it might now be unconstitutional. But we have to live with the cases as they are until they're challenged and changed. Yes? One quick comment, question. What did they do in Orange County when, like the number most popular, oldest Hispanic name in Colorado is Otterby? They probably wouldn't even have picked that up, right? They might not. I don't know. The data is not exact, I can tell you that. Yeah. Other questions? Great. Thank you again.